This episode will discuss the mental status assessment following chapter 5 of the Jarvis textbook. The Jarvis textbook defines mental status as a person's emotional and cognitive function. This assessment is unique in that typically it actually does not need to be performed. Most of the information the nurse needs about a patient's mental status will come naturally as the rest of the health assessment is performed. This makes sense when you think about life outside of healthcare. When we meet people, even for the first time, we typically don't stop to ask about their emotional state or cognitive ability. We simply gather it from talking to them about whatever else we talk to people about. In this chapter, you will learn how to describe those normal findings and how to spot the most common abnormal findings with a few tests to help detect those abnormal findings. The mental status assessment is divided into four sections following the mnemonic ABCT. A stands for appearance, B stands for behavior, C stands for cognition, T stands for thought processes. Starting with appearances, their posture, their body movements, the way that they dress, the way that they groom themselves. Of course, this doesn't give us a complete picture of somebody's um, emotional and cognitive state but there are a lot of clues that we can find. Generally, in terms of normal findings, we're looking for somebody who's erect, relaxed, their body movements are voluntary and deliberate, they're dressed appropriately, they're groomed appropriately. We do want to be careful when we're talking about the way that somebody is dressed and the way that they're groomed and calling some normal, some abnormal. The kind of things that we're looking out for in terms of abnormal findings are things like sudden changes. If somebody was previously just well-dressed for every single appointment, then all of a sudden they're disheveled, then that is something that is a, um, a concerning sign simply because of the change. If somebody's always been disheveled and is more of a stylistic choice, of course, that's perfectly fine for them to, to stay that way. We wouldn't call that abnormal if that's just the way that they've chosen to um, dress and groom themselves. The next category is B, which stands for behavior. Remember, we're following the ABCT mnemonic. Under behavior, there's level of consciousness, facial expression, their speech, their mood, their affect. Of course, when it comes to somebody's level of consciousness, we don't have to think very hard. We don't have to do a very specific test usually to know that somebody's fully awake. Right? If there's if they're talking to you, if they're staying conscious during the conversation, then we would say, okay, this person is awake and alert. But of course, if they're falling asleep during the conversation and you, you have to keep waking them up, then that is an abnormal level of consciousness. Their facial expression should match their mood and affect. If this patient just received devastating news, they should be sad. That's not necessarily an abnormal finding. If it's appropriate, if they just got good news and they're really happy, then of that is normal as well. But if they got good news and they're sad about it, or if they got really sad news and they're looking very happy, then that does not really that does not match the situation. So what we're looking for when we're talking about facial expression, their mood and their affect, we're talking about is it appropriate to the situation? Mood and affect are slightly different. The mood is just the general feeling that they that they're feeling inside. Their affect is more specifically how their their expression of those emotions. So a lot of times people can have what's called a flat affect. You look at them and there just doesn't seem to be any emotion being shown in their face. You tell them good news. You tell them bad news. You serve them good food, bad food. It's in the morning and night, and they just have the same kind of mask-like expression. That would be called a flat affect. With regard to speech. The most people that you speak with will be able to converse with you appropriately without any problems. But there are going to be people that have problems and we want to be very careful about 
specifically noting what about their speech is abnormal. Do they speak with an abnormal volume? That's what's called dysphonia. Do they have a, a hard time stringing together words? It takes them a long time to find the specific words that they are looking for. This happens with Broca's aphasia. Maybe they can string together words, but sometimes some of those words are nonsense. That is seen with Wernicke's aphasia. So there are a lot of different problems that can happen when it comes to speech. So when you're describing the findings of somebody with a speech disorder, try to be as specific as possible as to what kind of difficulty this client is specifically showing. Moving along in our ABCT mnemonic, the next is C, which stands for cognitive functions. The first is orientation. So when it comes to orientation, we're specifically looking for, are they oriented to time, place, and situation? So do you know what time it is right now? Do you know what day it is right now? Um, do you know where you are? Do you know who you are? What's your name? Who am I? If the patient is fully awake and alert, and is able to correctly answer those three questions, we would describe that person as alert and oriented to time, place, and situation. This is one of the most common things that nurses report about patients, their consciousness and their orientation. So as a shorthand, instead of saying alert and oriented to time, place, situation, they simply say ANO times three. If a patient were fully awake and alert, but they can only say the correct place and person, but they have no idea what time it is, they have no idea what day it is, then such a person would be ANO times two. Um, when you're writing this down, it would be capital A, capital O, lowercase x, and then the number. The next parameter of cognitive function is attention span. Again, like I said with the mental status assessment in general, we don't have to stop and test this most of the time. Simply by talking to them, by performing the assessment, we get an idea of whether they can follow along and whether they have the attention to kind of stay on, on task with what you're telling them to do. But there are there is a very specific test that your book mentions where you give the patient a sequence of behaviors to do. Um, take this glass of water, walk to the door, open the door, and then come back and sit back down. And so we're testing whether they can keep all those things in their short-term memory and do those before getting distracted and moving off to something else. Moving on to recent and remote memory. Again, we don't have to stop and do a specific test for recent memory, then a specific test for remote memory, and then move on. Incidentally, we might test these things. For example, if we wanted to do a nutritional assessment on a patient, we may start with a 24-hour diet recall. A 24-hour diet recall is performed by simply asking the patient to recall everything that he or she has eaten in the past 24 hours. For remote memory, we may want to ask the patient about previous health, previous family history, medications they've taken in the past. Both of these things are verifiable, which is actually very important when it comes to assessing memory. How do you know that the patient isn't just making up things? Patients don't typically do that, but it is still ideal to ask questions where the answer is verifiable. The next component of cognitive function is new learning. And again, as you're speaking with the patient, you can simply test for new learning by educating the patient about something and then asking later, hey, can you teach that back to me? What I just told you, can you say that back to me in your own words? The test that the book describes to specifically test for this is called the four unrelated words test. You give the client four words that are completely unrelated to one another, and then you ask the patient to repeat those words back to you five, 10, and then 30 minutes later. Ideally, they will remember all of the words, but if they only remember three out of four that's perfectly normal too. Which brings us to the last letter in our ABCT mnemonic, which is T for thought processes. 
Normal findings for thought process, thought content, perceptions would be that the patient simply makes sense. They're when they speak, they are logical, they're coherent. The things that they say are relevant to the conversation. There's a clear train of thought that makes sense. Obvious abnormal findings for thought processes and perceptions would be somebody who's completely illogical, makes completely illogical statements that are completely irrational, or somebody who perceives things that are absolutely unfeasible. Some clients will express completely irrational paranoia, believing that the president of the United States is personally chasing them around town. But it is much more common for an abnormal thought process to be much more subtle. Take for example, anxiety. Being anxious is an appropriate response in many situations, but for many people, they are obsessed with the things that they're anxious about, or they have a really disproportionate anxiety compared to the actual thing that's causing the anxiety. And this disproportionate anxiety can actually become debilitating and affect their quality of life significantly. Because these signs and symptoms of depression and anxiety are somewhat more subtle, it's important that we use an evidence-based tool instead of just using our general judgment to guess whether somebody is anxious or depressed to try to detect those people who are at risk for an anxiety disorder or for depression. There's a tool for both of these disorders in your textbook. It's very easy to confuse anxiety with depression, so keep an eye out for those very specific things that are unique about one as opposed to the other. For example, somebody who is anxious would feel would report feeling very nervous, very on edge, whereas somebody who's depressed would report feeling very down, depressed, and hopeless. Uh, a patient who is anxious would have trouble relaxing, but somebody who's depressed will have trouble falling asleep or staying asleep or sleeping too much. An anxious person would be so restless that it's really hard for them to sit still. Uh, someone who's depressed would feel very tired and have very little energy. They're feeling down. An anxious person might feel afraid as if something awful is just about to happen. And for someone who's depressed, they feel really bad about themselves. It's almost like all the bad things already happened. There's no getting out of it. Somebody who's anxious would worry too much about a lot of different things. Somebody who's depressed would be more likely to say that they have little interest or pleasure in doing things. Just as important as identifying those things that make anxiety and depression unique is to look for the parts that are actually the same between these two specific questionnaires. And you will see that both ask very specific questions in a very specific time frame over the last two weeks. This is one of those situations where a test question may ask you which is the better question to ask to screen for anxiety or to screen for depression. One, have you ever had depression? Two, in the last two weeks, have you felt depressed? You can see how those two questions sound very similar on the surface at the get-go, but when you think about it, you can imagine an 80-year-old patient saying, yes, I was depressed back when I was 20 years old. Does that mean that that patient is depressed right this moment? No. The answer to the second question, have you been depressed in the last two weeks? Have you had feelings of depression in the last two weeks? Is much more helpful because it gives a time frame, and this will yield a more helpful response from the patient. In addition to screening for depression, the book also talks about how to screen for suicidal thoughts. The short answer is that you should be very direct with people about asking them about suicidal thoughts. Don't dance around the bush about it. Don't use euphemisms. Ask them, do you feel like hurting yourself now? Do you have a plan to kill yourself? What would happen if you're dead? 
Do you feel like life is worth living? Do you have a specific plan and a specific time on when you would like to kill yourself? This will be very uncomfortable for many of you. I mean, it should be uncomfortable to ask these types of questions, but don't shy away because of the discomfort. It is very important that you ask these questions because the risk of not asking them is far greater than the risk of asking them. So that is the ABCT mnemonic. The book also mentions a few things about assessing the mental status of an older adult. For the most part, it's the same, but older adults are more likely to have delirium or dementia. It's very important that you understand the difference between those two terms. A delirium is an acute stage of confusion. And that happens very suddenly as a result of some kind of acute change. Um, it could be something like an infection or even intoxication, and it's generally reversible. Dementia, on the other hand, is very gradual and is irreversible generally. And so delirium and dementia can often be confused with one another. But remember that delirium is acute, reversible. Dementia is generally progressive, non-reversal. And also dementia is less likely to have some kind of change in alertness. Typically, somebody who has dementia is fully awake and alert. Someone who has delirium is more likely to have an altered level of consciousness. Another important consideration is that the older adult is more likely to have some kind of sensory loss. We're going to talk about this more when we talk about hearing and vision specifically, but a lot of times hearing and vision deficits can be confused for some kind of delirium and dementia. Sometimes somebody with a sensory loss may just smile and nod to you because they're too embarrassed to stop you and explain that they actually didn't understand what you said, and you would confuse that as them being confused, but actually you're the one who's confused. You don't, you don't understand what's happening with this particular adult. So keep an eye out for those kinds of sensory losses. Just one final comment about the mental status assessment. There are a few fuzzy boundaries around and within mental status assessment. And for example, um, where does the mental status assessment end and the neurologic assessment begin? Or where do we draw the line between the mental status assessment and the general survey? Even between the different components of the mental status assessment, you might be wondering, why is facial expression listed under behavior and not appearance? Or why does attention span fall under cognition and not thought processes? The truth is that there is a lot of overlap between these different categories, and the boundaries between these domains were probably decided somewhat arbitrarily. There's no way anyone could perfectly divide our emotions and cognitive abilities into a need for a letter mnemonic, but the ABCT mnemonic is still a very helpful tool as a way to roughly categorize the many different aspects of a person's mental status. And with that, I will conclude this episode on the mental status assessment. Thanks for listening.